Hello, everyone. My name is Ryan Griggs, and I'm the host of the Regenesis Podcast. And alongside to me today is a really special guest, Mark McAfee from Raw Farm. Thank you for joining. You're very welcome, Ryan. Glad to be with you. Where Where are you uh, recording from? What state? So I'm in Austin, Texas. Okay, good. Good. And um, so I was thinking about this too before a call. Um, just really popped in my head because so the Chinese New Year, it's the year of the dragon, and I wholeheartedly believe. From the American calendar, it's the year of raw milk. Um, just going into 2024 and seeing, especially on social media, I just see a lot more talk about raw milk. And I just anecdotally, so many people are, are trying it now. And yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for this year in terms of raw milk. And so thank you again for joining. And with that, I would just love to, I guess, t- just take it back to why did you start Raw Farm? Well, First of all, thank you so much for inviting me. And I would also agree with your idea that this is the year of the raw milk. It has been a little bit for the last three years, but this year is particularly important because momentum has really, really caught on. An example of that momentum is um, the last two years, we've had 50% growth year over year, every year. So this is the third year of the row we're going into a 50% growth cycle uh, in selling raw milk. And the influencers, we've got over 1,000 influencers wanting to be on our influencer list. We only have room for about 350 or 400, just our labor to be able to support that many people. It's just incredible in terms of the amount of focus. So, I mean, we're having to sort through who has a million followers or less kind of a thing. You know, it's really crazy. So I think this is the year of the raw milk um, to catch, really catch fire in a very serious momentum. The reason I began raw milk was this. It began back in 1997, 1998 period time when um, I had just retired from 17 years of being a paramedic here in Fresno County. And um, my grandparents had passed away. They had a thousand acres of prime agricultural land that I'd grown up on that they'd rented out to other farmers. My dad had farmed for a period of time about 50 years ago, 40 years ago, but then he, he retired from that and did something else. And my grandparents had the land and other farmers farmed it. And I'd done some farming as, as a uh, when I was a paramedic just on the side to help them. But they passed away. My, my brothers were doing very well in the Silicon Valley doing computer stuff. Um, and I was uh, done with seeing dead bodies and not getting any sleep at night. So uh, my wife's a nurse. She was delivering babies. And so we have this heady pre-med medical background. I also taught paramedic medicine for the local health department for a while. So here's an opportunity before you, a thousand acres of agricultural property, and you see this roller coaster from hell, literally, on the commodity system where farmers do really well and they lose it all, do really well and lose it all. Roller coaster, high, low, high, low, always chasing the highs and, and losing it on the lows. And I saw that and I said, I do not want to get on the roller coaster, but I want to farm. I want to feed people. So I did some serious research and I I realized that there was an opportunity to produce organic alfalfa to support organic dairies. And there was quite a few organic dairies at the time, about 160 or so in California. And so I started producing organic valley selling to organic dairies. But I realized very quickly that I'd grown up when I was a young child on a, a dairy, a small dairy. And I decided, you know, why don't I just create my own organic dairy? So I did. Uh, we bought some cows, we put them on pastures, we started producing raw milk to be sold for pasteurization initially. Mm. 
as soon as I put up a website, my brother worked for Apple Computer. He was literally three doors away from Steve Jobs for many years in, in Cupertino, my brother Adam. He said, let's put up a website. They're just a new thing. They were as new as TikTok is today, right? <laughs> uh, back in 1999. So we put up a website saying, this is what Organic Pastures is doing. Now we've named it Raw Farm, but we had people immediately grab a hold of that and say, we want your raw milk. Don't sell it to the pasteurizer. Bring it to LA. Mm -hmm. So Altadena was a huge raw milk producer in Los Angeles at the time. And they went out of business in May of 1999. They, they sold all their operations. They made a lot of money because of the, of the, uh, uh, the real estate value in Los Angeles. So they no longer had a dairy down there and they sold all their stuff to, to uh, Suiza and then Horizon, Danone. And so there was this big vacuum in Los Angeles, no raw milk. I did not know that. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I took a couple hundred half gallons of raw milk and a, and a bunch of ice chests in the back of my suburban with my wife down to Los Angeles on request from a guy by the name of James Stewart. And he had a place called The Garage. And The Garage was this no-account little place in the back streets of Venice Beach, Los Angeles, where people would get together a couple of times a week and buy foods you couldn't get in the store. Amish milk, all kinds of weird stuff that you couldn't get. And so as I arrived, and this is early cell phone days, so I was taking some calls here and there, in this alleyway, the alleyway was jammed packed with a crowd. We're talking, I don't know how many people, was it 75, 175? I don't know, I didn't count, but just packed solid with people. And I drove into the crowd really slowly and they were cheering. And they opened the back doors of the Suburban and I couldn't even get out because there's so many people. And they started <laughs> grabbing the milk and just yelling for joy and jumping up and down and putting $10 and $20 bills in the car as they took their half gallon of milk out. And so within a few minutes, I got out and I, I met James. I'd never met him before and uh, said, hey, this is wonderful. Tell me more. And we heard stories about people saying they couldn't drink pasteurized milk and raw milk was so good for their kids that had various problems. Their asthma would get better if they didn't have raw, if they didn't have uh, raw milk, their asthma would get worse. My wife started hearing this because she's a nurse and going, wow, this is really medical food. And we heard maybe 10 or 20 stories and stayed there for about a half an hour. And uh, they said, you've got to come back in a couple of days. We need more milk. And so my wife got back in the car. I got back in the car and we pulled away. We didn't even count the money. It was all over the car. It's thousands <laughs> of dollars all through the car. And we drove away and said, what the hell just happened? That was my beginning of raw milk. And from that, I called my son, who's now our president. He has his master's degree in, in business. He's brilliant. He's almost 40 years old now. We called him. And this is literally 26 years ago. Said, we got to build a creamery immediately and get a permit from the state of California because we know raw milk's legal here. We just need to do it right. And so we built a small creamery literally in 60 days uh, using wow. reefer vans, big old 50-foot reefer vans with refrigeration and all that stuff. Um, not even a, a structure on the ground, just reefer van because it would be portable to build. And the state of California gave us a permit. We started doing all the things you do to produce raw milk. We got glass bottles and started producing and we brought milk in on one end of the of the uh, this container and we would bottle it there and we put a wall in the middle and the other end was the cold storage and we shipped out of the side. Wow. Within one year, we were selling a million dollars of raw milk into Los Angeles and the surrounding areas. Now we're 26 times that large. 
26 years, 26 million times harder, higher. A lot of that growth last, oh, I'd say the last three years has been accelerated growth. But nonetheless, we grew all through that period. And what we met on that day in 1999, 2000, was the pent ultimate target of our consumers. That literally the fanatical, compassionate, passionate, have to have the nutrition, the West State Price people. We met the core there. And they were all walks of life in that core. But they were the ones that educated us. And then I met the Stubies uh, who owned Altadena and they taught me a lot of the tricks of the trade of how to do Ramak properly. Um, and there have been a lot of lessons since then. As a pioneer, you, you don't get help from many people. You have to go get help and get educated. But that's the beginning of, of my raw milk saga. Um, and it's been a phenomenal, purpose-driven, uh, humanitarian, compassionate kind of thing because we're not selling to a processor anymore. We're selling to people. And that is a tremendous renaissance. It's a, it is literally regenerative, reconnecting, socially legitimate, socially important, socially essential thing. And that is getting to know your farmer and getting to know your food because the farmer can respond directly to the consumer and know what they want because they're crying for it. And the consumer can know their farmer and pay them well and thank them and visit them. Fantastic connectivity, which has been lost in America for the most part and much of the world. Exactly so that's, why. That's, that's the beginning of it there. That's the beginning of it. A lot of stories around it, but that's the beginning. No, that's awesome. And that's, I mean, it's funny because that last portion, you essentially just explained my whole entire brain with Renaissance. <laughs> so no, that's just- I, I believe it deeply. Um, so yeah, that was awesome. On the topic of starting the whole process the right way, because raw milk is such a hot topic and it's really interesting reading comments online because people are either really for it or they- are so against it. Pretty much the same energy that vegans have is the same energy people have towards raw milk. Correct. And so if you could just help educate on, yeah, whenever you're trying to start that the right way and how to ensure that you were doing it the right way, because again, I think a lot of it is just lack of awareness and education behind raw milk. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, let me touch on that a little bit. We have a saying here, which has been more broadly adopted nationally, but started here, which is, you don't ever sell raw milk. You teach raw milk. In fact, there's a poster above my head here. It's up there someplace. It says, there you go. <laughs> you don't sell raw milk, you teach it. But, I like that. Yeah. Because why would anybody buy raw milk that back in the 1880s, 130, 140 years ago, killed 30 to 40% of the people that drank it in certain areas? So there's a very dark history, which was... A very short period of time, maybe 50, 60 years between 1850 and two, uh, maybe 1900, that period, uh, which was called the milk problem. And think about it. Let's just say 15,000 years ago. I know the science is pretty strong saying 12 to 13. But let's say 13 to 15,000 years ago, mankind started really documenting in evidence that in fact they consumed raw milk from other mammals. Mankind is always nursed from themselves. Moms nurse their babies, and that's the million raw milk, right, for their babies. But mankind chose not to starve anymore and bring a portable food machine with them, which was a camel, a goat, a sheep, a horse, a reindeer, a donkey, horse, you know, whatever, cows, uh, that could eat grass, forage, 
And then with sunshine and water, guess what? There was more of that available and you got to get milk today. And the, the cow or the goat or the sheep or horse or whatever always had offspring and got really hungry. You could always kill the calf if you needed to eat more or whatever. It was just a fantastic, portable way to convert sunshine into food and it'd be a whole food today to make cheese, buttercream, kefir, everything. So the history is really, really quite strong on, on, on mankind, mankind relying on mammalian milk all around the world. And so when you had conditions like green grass, less crowded conditions, pastures, clean water, clean water is very, very important out on the countryside or wherever mankind was. And then you brought them into a very, very crowded city where there was no pasture, there was no clean water, there were no flushing toilets, there was manure and human feces everywhere. And tuberculosis, brucellosis, typhoid was rampant. Uh, it was a filthy, disgusting mess. And you tried to milk a cow in that environment and put the milk into an unclean container. You could just see the map. It ain't pretty. It's ugly what's happening. So the raw milk that was in the countryside at the same period of time, 1870s, 1880s, was perfectly fine. It was going to the male clinic to heal people. But it was the death in the city that was really causing this major problem. So, <coughs> excuse me, I got a cough today. Um, Strauss, who was a philanthropist at the time, a multimillionaire at that time, Strauss, brought in something called the parboiler, which was used, used uh, actually in the brewery uh, industry in France. And parboiler was the early uh, type of pasteurization equipment. And so they put the milk, they would bring the milk to these brewery dairies where they were feeding the cows, breweries, distillers, grades, instead of pastures and grass and sunshine and clean water. And they would cook it in these downtown city parboilers. And then they would distribute them out from there. And a lot, a lot fewer people died. 40% uh, fewer people died. Still had some people dying from unclean conditions and, and unclean water. But nonetheless, it was the savior of the day for these particular conditions in these particular cities. Now, at the same time, a guy by the name of Dr. Henry Coit established the American Association of Medical Milk Conditions, the AAMMC. And for 106 years, this organization was around the world and certified dairies. It was a board of physicians that would come out to your dairy and certify that you were making milk in a clean way. So you had certified raw milk and you had this parboiled milk kind of going like this together. Well, certified raw milk thrived until about 1940. And what happened in 1940? We had a world war and we had uh, a, a lot a lots of uh, uh, interest in expensive food. Everything had to be super cheap and commercially available because we had people starving everywhere. We had to feed everybody. We needed a longer shelf life. So it was very convenient to industrialize the hell out of pasteurized milk and just ignore the expensive stuff. We weren't worried about health in the 1940s. We were worried about cheap food and smoking was good for your lungs and DDT, DDT was literally good for your skin. You know, that was 1940s. And social problems, fix it with a nuclear bomb or two. So that was 1940s. So from the 1940s to 1999, there was a major descent in, in, in raw milk and pasteurized milk would do all kinds of blame games against the AAMC, including the, the Altadena dairy, the, Alt the Stubies, the Altadena was the last certified dairy, the last AAMMC certified dairy in the hmm. world in LA in 1999. So I learned from the last of the greats. Let's put it that way. Um, that said, that dark history is used by industry and regulation, FDA, CDC, and everybody 
to suppress uh, any bit of thought of raw milk. And it's, it's put into the history books, it's put into everything. Even though, for instance, raw butter, raw butter has not caused a documented death in America in over a hundred years. Wow. There's no doc. The CDC has no documentation, no evidence of illnesses or deaths from raw butter in America. None. But yet it's forbidden across state lines in America. Is that insane? It, it's crazy. Yeah. So raw milk itself is not particularly innately dangerous, but if you do it improperly, can be a very high risk food and make people sick. Very few people have actually died from raw milk in the last 50 years. I, I can only document two uh, deaths that I'm familiar with. Uh, and both of them became illegal sources were untested, and one was imported bathtub cheese from Mexico. So there's been very few. There's been over 82 documented deaths from pasteurized dairy products in the last 35 years. So there's no such thing as a perfect food. But what there is is a, a set of practices you can use to make a very low risk, very, very safe raw milk and raw kefir and raw butter and cream and cheese and all those products. What it is, is all about the conditions you use. You want to have your cows in, in dry bed packs. Uh, you don't want to have them in a bunch of sloppy manure. Uh, you want to make sure that they're fed extremely well, that their udders are cleaned really, really well. You want pasture, sunshine, all those kinds of things when available. Uh, so you have to set up the right kind of conditions. And then you need to, to milk them very cleanly. And then that milk needs to rapidly be chilled, not sit around for three or four hours like three hours, well, two hours is the limit uh, on the pasteurized milk ordinance. You can wait two hours to get your milk below 50 degrees. At raw farm, in two minutes, it's below 34. Wow. So you can see there's a completely different set of standards and expectations for raw milk. So super clean, super quick, super cold, and you get a 21-day shelf life before change of flavor. And then we do a whole other round of things, which is testing of the products, testing of the cows to make sure they don't have diseases, and make sure that they themselves are, are healthy and that the products they're making are healthy and testing for pathogens like E. coli, L157H7, and salmonella, listeria, uh, campylobacter, those kinds of things to assure that consumers are not exposed to pathogenic bacteria. They're only exposed to this biodiversity of fantastic yogurt-like beneficial bacteria, which come from raw milk. So it's a whole different set of practices, much more expensive. You can't ignore things. You can't just throw it in the in the in the truck and send it off to be pasteurized because they're going to cook it. Who cares? Like in 1893. So, pasteurization was an 18th century solution to an 18th century problem, and we can do a lot better. And that's not my quote. That's a quote from Dr. Bruce German at the International Milk Genomics Consortium at UC Davis, who's the foremost milk researcher in the world, who's a friend of mine. So. We have the technology, we have the knowledge, we have the uh, understanding of how to produce raw milk, but we do not have the willpower. And we also do not have the regulatory, legislative, or political will to do so because the dairy industry owns it. The dairy industry will not allow that needle to shift. But here's the thing. I don't worry about those guys. I don't worry about any of those guys. I do it legally and I do it extremely well. And you, you know who makes that decision? The consumers do. We have them dollar voting for us, and now we are knocking it, the ball out of the freaking park with sales, and the consumers are dollar voting and making choices for Rama because it's such a fantastic immune system, gut rebuilding food. It's a regenerative food that is the finest regenerative food on 
um, in the world. And the reason is, it must be. The first food of life for a baby, mammal of any kind, builds the immune system, nourishes them completely, directs them to what they need to do. It does three things. It nourishes, directs, and protects. Three things that Ramab does. And so it's done, that's Mother Nature's blueprints. But when you pasteurize, you lose all of that. You may have a little bit of nourishment left because there's sugars and proteins, but they're denatured. But the bottom line is, raw milk is a fantastic food that we need badly in America and in all in all worlds, in all countries, because of the foods we generally get, uh, most stores are highly processed and the emphasis is on a long shelf life, not gut life. The longer the shelf life, the more um, inert the food is, right? The less bioactive it is, the less ability to actually be easily digested. And in closing, before you ask the next question here, it's interesting to note at the FDA website themselves for allergenic foods, pasteurized fluid milk is the number one most allergenic food in America, number one. But yet, raw milk is known to be non-allergenic and very, very good against allergies because of all the studies done in Europe, the fact that children have a relief of allergies and a relief of asthma and, and raw whey proteins, which are destroyed in vascularization, raw whey proteins, one of the proteins in raw milk, stabilize the mast cells, the M-A-S-T cells in the connective tissues of our bodies, which keep histamines from being, re, uh, being released and are very anti-inflammatory. Uh, so the medicine behind raw milk is powerful. And it's, it's by God's hand itself. I mean, think about Mother Nature working for a... a, a several hundred thousand years to optimize the first food of life to assure that the children, the babies, the young, the mammals would survive and thrive came from raw milk. No, that was awesome. There's a lot I have to say with that. So uh, there's three things. The first thing, going back to whenever you were talking about in the 1800s, the, the, the milk in the rural areas versus the cities, I started learning about swill milk uh. and how they attach cows to the back of a distillery and they're just feeding them the nastiest grains. And obviously, like you were saying, just awful conditions. And the only reason why they did that is because it upped the production of milk, but the milk itself was disgusting. And you look at the charts of just the, the baby's illnesses in these large cities like New York City, there's a strong correlation. And yep. um, like you were saying, yeah, it was just way different time. And that really opened up my eyes to that. And then also going back to uh, pasteurized versus raw milk, this what really opened up my eyes too is the largest salmonella case in our history was in 85 and that was caused by pasteurized dairy. Right. And so I, I just find, I keep finding more and more stories like this in history that it just boggles my mind because I'm 30 now and I didn't have raw milk until I was 27 and I was drinking the Kool-Aid of thinking that it should be illegal and it will kill us. And uh, so, yeah, that was really great. And then the second point was going back to the actual conditions that you have I guess if you can just talk more into what is, I guess, the life of, of a dairy cow at raw farm, because again, if you don't visit the farm itself, it, it's hard to understand what's actually going behind the scenes. So I'm just curious if you just paint that picture for us. A raw farm. Yeah. Um, we've learned a lot of lessons in 26 years of producing raw milk. We've established some fundamental goals for ourselves. Our number one goal is to nourish humanity with the safest, low-risk, most nutrient-dense raw milk possible. Safest, most nutrient-dense, low-risk possible. Okay, Those are our goals, to nourish people. That is our goal. 
So there are some things on the animal husbandry side that may take a second position to that. Because we put people's health, raw milk, risk, nutrition, nutritional density, all those things, number one. And that's a very important nuance to what I'm about to say. You'll find that here at a raw farm, we do not tolerate any cows that have a pathogen in them. When we test and we find a pathogen in a cow, they're gone. They're ground beef. They're done. What we're doing is we're doing selection for genetic traits where those kinds of conditions inside the cow don't persist. So what we find is fewer, fewer problems inside cows because we've genetically selected for cows that don't do that. We also do artificial insemination. We don't have bulls here. And the reason is we used to have lots of bulls. We used to have 20 bulls out here breeding like crazy. But one attacked my wife, and that was the end of that. Um, I'm glad she was okay. But that I, I got there, and if I hadn't got there, she'd probably been dead. So that was the end of that. We do a lot of touring of people here at the farm. And the last thing we want to have is a bunch of bulls around here. They get aggressive with each other and with people. So we do artificial insemination. We do our own breeding here. And we select for certain traits. We select for herd health. We select for birthing ease, good hooves, um, uh, all the traits we want to have are strong immune systems. We actually genetically select for strong immune systems in the semen we actually inseminate our cows with. So that we are breeding a, 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 a herd that is resistant to pathogens, that gives birth to their calves easily, that has not high production. We're not looking for high production. We're looking for good production, but not high production. We don't want a race car out there. We want a Mercedes-Benz diesel engine that runs forever, that kind of thing, you know? And so that's kind of what we do. Now, we sometimes have bought cows from off-farm. But when we do, we buy them and segregate them on our farm for two months. Hmm. And we do a series of testing, and we only buy those cows of the best of the best, meeting certain genetic traits we want. And then we test them to make sure that they don't have any of the problems we have before they... They go into our herd. And those cows stay in what we call pen one. And that pen one only makes two products. It makes cheese. It makes butter, which are highly pathogen resistant. Fluid milk, kefir, and those other products may grow a pathogen inside the product. But butter and cheese do not. And so we have segregated our herd into four herds. We have three herds that are perfect. We're always testing them for any kind of problems. And any problem goes into the pen one for validation, verification. But... Uh, all of our calves are raised uh, to uh, very high standards and great conditions. And we only keep the best of those. We sell all the rest. We have the ability because of the economics of being able to set our own price points that we actually can drive sustainability here and having the best of the best. So you don't see cows with three teats, for instance. Very common on a herd to have a cow with three teats and not milk the fourth because the fourth had, because every udder has four, or, four quarters, um, every every quarter can be independently healthy of another quarter. So you can have mastitis in one quarter and the other three are fine. And let's say a milker puts a machine on the, on the udder and, and accidentally whips the machine onto the fourth quarter that has mastitis. Well, now you've got mastitis in your milk. So we have zero tolerance for a bunch of stuff that most dairies would put up with. We don't. But remember what our premise was. We want the best milk for hum humanity, safest and most nutritional. So... The cows have to perform at a high level, but we don't expect race cars out of them. All we're expecting is moderate production. We get long lives out of them. And we do have a culling process where we don't allow cows to persist here if they're identified as a problem. So 
Some people say, oh, that's so inhumane. No, it's not because the cows out here are fantastic conditions, doing the having a great life. Um, pastures, uh, composted bed packs, which are warm um, and they're dry to lay, lay down on. Um, a fantastic feed, which includes all kinds of mineral uh, enhancements to make sure that their mineral uh, support is good because you don't want to have a cow with a compromised immune system herself. That's where you have a problem. So they are fed incredibly well, including citrus in the wintertime. They get some citrus in their mix with alfalfa and all the other things they get. So we really, really pay attention to nutrition to assure that the cows are supported for optimal health to assure that they accomplish those premises we were talking about. So it's not an easy program. But I've been doing it for 26 years, and we've evolved it to be a really, really state-of-the-art program. And we have we pay our our dairy manager very, very well. He's been trained here. Uh, all really good people on a team. The guys that are milking the cows are paid extremely well. And where we'd have one milker and one regular dairy, we have four hmm. because of the preparation of how we clean the udders and make sure everything is perfect before the machine goes on. So you know, one of the reasons is the price point is much higher. Because we are sustainable. And, and the, the point about price point is in 1969, that was about 50 years ago, there was a price point on a Ford truck of $3,900. You could buy a Ford pickup truck for $3,900 in 1969. In 1969, the dairies were getting about 90 cents a gallon for their milk. Today, that Ford truck is 50,000 bucks if you can find one. <laughs> and that milk is a buck 50 a gallon. Now, you tell me what's screwed up there for the dairymen that are trying to produce milk, even for pasteurization. We have not put value on food in America. It's become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to the point where we have today, we're losing 3.7 dairies a day in America producing milk for pasteurization. 3.7 dairies a day. 455 dairies in Wisconsin lost last year alone. In 1960, uh, in, in 2005, there were 15,000 dairies. I think there was in, in Wisconsin. Now they're down to 6,000. Wow. So these are the 85 to 100 cow dairies, small, sustainable, nice, beautiful, you know, organic dairies and whatever. Gone, done, cooking, death. With suicide rates higher than veteran and veterans on the dairy industry side. Farmers have the, one of the highest suicide rates because they don't want to lose their operations on this generation. So we have a very serious sustainability issue in America on the agricultural side that totally embraces corporate agriculture because of the huge, huge investments to make things extremely cheap, highly processed to serve the consumers at the store. Um, people are starting to really reject that because when you do that, you're not listening to people. You're not looking or feeling the environmental pressures of that. You're not really sensing what needs to be done at the animal level. You're 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 insensitive to anything other than freaking greed. And when greed is in charge, you start destroying things. You start acting in cruel ways. You start cheating people. You start doing the wrong things as a humanitarian. You're no longer compassionate across the food chain. So. We operate differently. We operate directed on people and health and humanity, compassion. And we truly believe that. I take my paramedic, my sworn paramedic oath that with compassion and humanity, you serve all people. I believe that to the core. I've always believed that. And 
the good people we, we have around us believe it. And it, it's truly a flourishing concept when you take that from grass to glass. The earth we're on, the cows on the earth, the water, the sunshine, the grass, everything in the, the earthworms in the soil, what we're doing through the milking process, all of our employees or, or our family partners in that process, all the way through everything we do in our creamery, uh, even our, our relationships with our regulators uh, that, that come to inspect us. They deeply respect us and work with us very closely. They didn't initially, they thought I was crazy, but now they have deep respect for what we're doing because we know the language of food safety. We comply with the rules and we go far beyond them. And we invite them to know what we're doing so we can be on board together instead of fighting. And in California, we've built a beautiful alliance with CDFA, Dr. Stephen B, great partner. And they know where we're going, where we're going, and what our goals are. And they understand and support us and encourage us. Not a lot publicly. They're neutral publicly. But privately, they're very supportive of us. They see dairies collapsing all around us. But we're thriving. And they're not stupid people. They realize their job's depending on supporting us because we are the new wave, the new regenesance, thank you very much, uh, of what's going on. And people are dollar voting for it. And we're killing it. So there's just a lot to talk about here. This is a pioneering, regenerative, humanitarian, compassionate, deeply, deeply nourishing food, which rebuilds the immune system, which we need desperately. Look at COVID, my God. And it does it all naturally in concert with nature. That's why you see passion and you hear passion in my voice because I am very passionate about this. I love this so much. One big part of raw milk is just actually talking about the health and nutritional benefits of it. Because once I started learning about that as well, that just blew me away in comparison to uh, pasteurized dairy, but then just, yeah, dairy as a whole. So I know right before this, you were sharing a couple of your awesome products. And if you could just share those and talk about them. Well, let, let me walk you through uh, the pathway of our raw dairy products here. Every one of these products came to bear, by the way, came to being by consumer demand. I did not say, I'm going to make cheese. I'm going to say, what do people want? And they said, we want cheese, but we want it to be raw cheese, truly raw, never heated above body temperature of 100 degrees. So that retains all of its bioactive elements uh, and nothing's dead. Truly raw cheese. Um, raw butter. Remember that 60% of the bioactives found in raw milk are carried on the Fat globule, fat glob. 60% of all the goodies that you want in raw milk is carried on the fat. This is 86 to 87% butter fat, uh, really rich, uh, nice yellow butter. It so carries good. all the goodies, rich in K2 and all kinds of wonderful things. Uh, raw milk kefir, which is simply raw milk, which has been cultured with additional cultures because it's got its own cultures in it, hundreds of them. But we added an additional 12 cultures um, that make an incredibly biodiverse, enzyme-rich, nutritionally dense food, which is got a long shelf life because it's already fermented. But it's, a, it's slightly sour, delicious. We put uh, a lemon uh, flavor in this one. No sugar, no GMO. It's just a lemon flavoring. It's an essence. Um, and it's phenomenal. It's delicious. Make smoothies out of it. And this is our top seller uh, of all, which is the gallon of raw milk. Uh, this is the, the number one. This is the big kahuna here in California. It's the, it's the big mover. Um, fantastic product. And then raw cream, which is 40% butterfat, which is obviously the raw milk is about 4%, 4.5%. But then you take the cream off of that and you dump the skim because nobody wants it, because of the hogs. 
And then we have raw cream here, which is very, very nutrient dense because it's got so much butter fat. Remember, this is 86, 87% butter fat in the butter, but this is 40%. It's halfway there. So it's carrying a tremendous amount of bioactives in it, which are all anti-inflammatory. So that's a quick introduction to a fantastic group of products, which are just blowing it here in California, doing really, really well. And you know what? Not just here in California. Wherever raw milk is being produced well, they're doing very, very well as well. Pennsylvania, New Mexico, Texas, on the farm where you can't sell to the stores, doing very, very well. In the face of the fact we're losing 3.7 conventional dairies a day in America, yet we see people calling in to want to become certified at the Raw Milk Institute, to be, uh, become educated in how to produce raw milk well. Um, it's growing and thriving. So it's truly a renaissance right now of, of dairy in the raw form. So on the actual specifics, because um, again, on this debate of pasteurization versus raw, a lot of claims that pasteurized does not kill any of any important things with raw dairy that we would otherwise get. So if you could just talk more on that actually too, I think this could also just talk more on what you do with Raw Institute and just any of the research with that sure. too. Um, yeah. Well, you'll, you'll find that the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, the National Institutes of Health, NIH, and the FDA are kind of aligned in their messaging. If you Google benefits of raw milk, you'll probably get a warning up the FDA that don't drink it, you'll die, it won't drop, you know. Um, and it's really quite sad because it's not true. Um, and there's some partial truths to what they're saying, though. They have one standard in America for raw milk, and that raw milk standard is to be pasteurized. And if you go and do the studies on that milk that's to be pasteurized, they're absolutely correct. It's laden with pathogens. It could make you sick. But that's not what we're talking about. The standards they put together for raw milk under the pasteurized milk ordinance allows for pathogens. They don't ever officially measure pathogens in that milk because it's all going to go under what's called the five log kill pasteurization. So why would they worry about it? And that's what makes it so cheap and easy. You could throw a milking machine on any cow, any condition, uh, any cleanliness, and it doesn't matter because if there's a little poop in there or a sick cow, who cares because it's all going to get cooked. That's the kind of raw milk they're talking about. They're not talking about raw milk done on the kinds of conditions we're talking about, the kinds of conditions we train farmers to do in the Raw Milk Institute, where you worry about that from grass to glass, and you, you put practices in place which protect against that, which has an impeccable record. In fact, there are two studies right now on PubMed, which is recognized by the NIH, CDC, and FDA, although they don't like it, it's there. They're journal-published, peer-reviewed for PhDs in the, in the Netherlands, in Belgium, as well as in British Columbia. And both of them talk about the Rami effect, the Raw Milk Institute effect of when you do a couple things. One, you change the conditions of the cows, you train the farmers, you use high standards, and you test, everything changes. You stop seeing pathogens, or if you do, they're extremely rare. And so the FDA is basically struggling with the fact that they're getting so much pressure from industry to get rid of this competition, which kicked in their butt, that they're doing things that normal people would not do, which is called lying or expressing bias as truth. And we ignore all that. We really do, because the more we fight against it, the more we give value to it. We just ignore it. What we do is concentrate on two things, supremely good milk that's safe and feeding our customers and let the dollar voting make the choices. This current 
uh, generation of FDA, CDC, and NIH after 20 years will not be saying the same, th same things again. We're already meeting with them after 25 years. We're changing the culture to understand and believe and realize we're doing something differently. And when you get so big and so strong as a brand and as a movement across America and internationally as well, it's happening in Canada. When you are putting practices in place which work and people are saying, I'm not buying that pasteurized stuff anymore. It causes mucus. It causes a phlegm production because mast cells release histamines. It's very allergenic. It's hard to digest. It makes my tummy feel bad. When people start saying, I want my raw, and the pasteurized food industry at 3.7 dairies per day is losing out, um, and their market share is dropping by 2 to 10% every year, you start seeing a paradigm shift. And so what we just decided is instead of fighting them, we just feed the people. We feed the people and give them an option which is safe and good and clean and delicious. The dollar voting in America really changes things fairly quickly. And so the FDA has nothing to stand upon. They're a very lonely island of one person screaming to themselves. Um, and and uh, she, we got all kinds of movie stars and uh, Danica Patrick, the race car driver, uh, you know, David Carr, football player. Uh, I mean, I go on a day long. Um, Corey Spelling uh, with her five kids, all, you know, movie star. Huge support for us because they know the truth comes from the farmer, uh, not the FDA. The FDA is very much protecting their industry giant friends, which they are they come from. The, the policy people come from industry. And industry sends them there to do a job, which is protect us from them or whoever it is. And so their standards and regulations are very particular that uh, it's only pasteurized milk only, and they don't even recognize raw milk. Raw milk is to be pasteurized with standards to apply, and they don't even recognize it. So what we're doing is we're working at the state level where states have actually passed laws which allow raw, raw milk to be legal or to come from cow shares or other places, like in Texas, uh, you get your milk from a cow share, to be legalized and regulated at a, at a particular level, or maybe on-farm sales only as a, as a regulated product, which is Texas as well. So uh, it's a patchwork puzzle of 50 different states and 50 different states of chaos uh, with different regulatory regimes. And uh, industry loves that because we can't take our products and sell them across state lines. How, how well, however, I will say, we do have a permit from the FDA to sell our products, some of our products uh, over state lines as pet food. And they have a different label. And that label says for pet food consumption only. But in California, when we received that pet food license, and I ask you to read between the lines here slightly, um, all of our products must meet the same standards, human consumption standards. There's not one standard for pets and one standard for human. It's exactly the same product uh, in the same container with a different label. So I'm not allowed to say as a human, you're supposed to consume this, um, but uh, we have to produce that product to the same level and sanitation. It is labeled specifically for, for pet food consumption, but we're able to sell that product across the United States and it's selling very, very well. So say a, a mother is, is listening to this and um, I'm just curious because I'm sure you've heard all kinds of stories from your customers. Are there any that have really come to mind that were just really powerful in just healing their ailments by switching to drinking raw milk and, and just having raw dairy from from you? Uh, I've got some make you want to cry. Um, in fact, I have choked up on it. Um, this one young lady, 
was suffering terribly with Crohn's disease, which is a, a microbiome disruption, inflammation of the intestinal lining of the, of the gut. And she was on every medication and, and she was in the ICU and all kinds of stuff back and forth and antibiotics and it couldn't suppress the inflammation. It would go away and come back worse. And she was looking at having 10 feet of her intestines removed and having to poop in a colostomy bag. In other words, no longer going to the bathroom normally, it would have to literally go into a colostomy bag and have a port on her stomach uh, or abdomen to poop in a plastic bag for the rest of her life. And she did some research and found out whole food nutrition, olive oil, avocados, um, the uh, Mediterranean diet, uh, kefir, raw milk kefir, um, all kinds of wonderful, wonderful, soothing, healing, gut inflammation reducing foods that over time, like three to six months would actually make Crohn's go away. Well, instead of getting the surgery, she reached out to us and said, I need kefir. I need this. I need that. And we connected the dots with other people who had healed their gut and not had the surgery. And we have a long list of those people who have done that. And literally within a month or so, she was stopping, she was stopping having pain. She was still on her medication, but she was stopping having the pain. Within two months, she was feeling great. Within six months, she was feeling fantastic. And she stopped all of her medications and she was cured. And by the way, she was going to have 10 feet of her intestines removed and pooped in the plastic bags at 27 years old. That is a compelling story. You know, I have a, 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 a hat. It's my paramedic, a star of life in green for the green grass pastures. It says farmers over pharmacies. It's not farmers instead of pharmacies, it's farmers before pharmacies. Because pharmacies have a play an important role, they have surgery or whatever. We need pharmaceutical medication, but they should be not number one. They should be when needed in an emergency. We need to prevent disease through nutrition. And that means gut microbiome support, regeneration, getting the mucosal lines going, the biodiversity, the food to feed them, all that stuff going on in the gut. So you don't have a massive problem with your immune system, compromised immune systems and diseases and obesity and all these things going on, diabetes. You don't have autoimmune diseases going crazy, which is a result of antibiotics and chemotherapy and everything else because autoimmune diseases are defined by the fact that you become too clean, too monoculture inside and your body starts to attack itself. You need that biodiversity of bacteria to have the bandwidth, the genomic bandwidth to actually interplay with your cells to drive the right decisions at the cellular level. And we've lost that. We know this information. It came out of the Human Genome Project and all the follow-ons since 2002. But it doesn't make money for big pharma. It doesn't make money for big ag, the high process stuff. So suppress that. It's not true. It's It doesn't exist. And that's the truth. And as a result, we suffer as a group of people in this country. And internationally. So farmers over pharmacies, we've got to make food our new medicine. It's very old medicine. Hippocrates said, let food be your medicine, medicine be your food. He said, do no harm. And, you know, we're doing a lot of harm by ignoring the fact that foundational, nutritionally dense foods that are whole, complete, bioavailable, bio and biodense are neglected uh, and ignored and suppressed. So we have to be 
really, really strong soldiers here as pioneers going forward and take those slings and arrows and gunshots wherever they're coming from and just ignore them and realize you've got a bulletproof armor. Consumer choice, dollar voting. Consumers are your highest priority. Ignore all that background mess. Ignore all the, the sound. That sound gets weaker and weaker and farther and farther and less and less when you ignore it. Because what's the lion that will eat you? The one you feed. So we don't feed that lion. We ignore it. We feed people. And that's been a powerful, powerful thing that works really, really well. Um, stay with the hard science. Stay with the, the people. Uh, hang out with really smart people that know a lot more than you do. And I do with the International Mouth Genomics Consortium. I've done it for 12 years now. I'm the only farm in the room with 120, 150 PhDs that know lactation more than anybody. And so we know this stuff really, really well, and we apply the science, the true science, not the stuff that's been twisted by corporations. I'm talking about the true science coming from universities that are studying and know what the hell's going on. And we apply that, and we correlate it between human health and nutrition, and we connect the dots, and we bring that together. And let me tell you what, raw milk would not be thriving if it was fake news. Raw milk is thriving because it is true at the mother nature's blueprint level and it's missing in our lives and when you put it back in you get phenomenal health as long as you make sure you're eating a whole food diet along with it of course uh, so there's a lot of stuff going on right now that's really quite evolutionary and um pioneering uh it takes guts backbone but i tell you what you get a lot of guts and backbone when you get supported by people that love you uh because you have a whole new wave and movement of people that believe in what you're doing because they believe that they need it themselves. They have changed their bone density in their teeth. They're stopped getting Adele carries. Um, their Crohn's goes away. Irritable bowel goes away. Asthma gets much, much better. It goes away. Allergies, skin problems, eczema, colds, flu, um, infection rates. Uh, that's 90% of medicine in America. Uh, children thrive going off of breast milk. They start drinking raw milk from their trusted farmer. And they continue to do well. They grow well. They, they, they don't get sick. They don't need vaccinations. Or if they do, they tolerate them well. I'm not a big vaccination guy. And the reason is we naturally be, build an immune system through our adaptive and, and adaptive uh, uh, immune system ourselves by exposing ourselves, the innate and adaptive immune systems, by the innate immune systems, your body's functions, your systems, your structure, by supporting to make sure they're strong. And then the adaptive immune system where you're introducing biodiversity and your body reacts to building new antibodies. And so this is the natural way that we build our immune systems for the last count your numbers, 100,000, 200, 500. It's, it's the, the animal way. It's the, it's the blueprints of life. And so people are embracing that. So they don't need to have some artificial new way of doing things that can be harmful, or beneficial. I don't know. Sometimes they work. But the bottom line is, why not use the natural paths first, farmers over pharmacies, before pharmacies, before you have to do that other stuff. And that's my, my paramedic coming out of me, but it's also my organic farming coming out of me and the biodiversity of the rich soils, the dirt and soils that, and, the, and the things found in raw milk, which are incalculably connected to our health. Um, I mean, you think about the bioactives, the number of bioactives found in milk, easily thousands, thousands of them in there. And the reason is all the proteins, there's 25 to 100 proteins have peptides with enzymes associated with them. I mean, there's 700 different kinds of bacteria found in milk. 
There's uh, an uncounted several hundred kinds of enzymes found in milk, most of which are very anti-inflammatory, like alkaline phosphatase. Um, so Mother Nature's blueprints are just incredibly mind-blowing. Um, and when you think about what mothers do when breastfeeding their babies and that whole couplet event and and natural uh, natural childbirth and what happens, it's a miracle when you study it and understand what happens to the immune system. Well, we're taking that miracle of life and we're giving it to people in a bottle um, and they are thriving and doing really well. And Dollar Bobby showing the evidence. So just everything that you just said right there is why I'm so passionate about trying to just educate more on raw milk because I, I was thinking about this last week. I truly believe that raw milk can save America with just the climate we're in because it superfood gets thrown out there a lot, but I truly believe raw milk is a superfood and just the story you shared, that's a story that I continue to read online of just anecdotal stories of healing. Um, you go into the history of the, the raw or the real milk cure in the 1800s, the French did there. It's just so incredible. And once you actually start getting over the hump of what we've been told for so long and try raw milk and then actually talk to the farmers that are doing the real work, it opens the floodgates to, to you thinking about your health, where the food comes from, and then that just snowballs into other facets of life. And so, yeah, I'm just incredibly wow. stoked to, to, to hear those stories because it's incredible what it can do. Let's think about crime rates in prison systems. When your gut is well, your mind follows. Remember the gut-brain connection. Yep. And the serotonin, which makes you feel good, the dopamine that makes you feel good, the neurotransmitters that operate in your brain that make you make good decisions and make you feel better and uh, don't give you mental illness. You know, the, the brain connection, the brain function is driven by the gut. When your gut is not well, you don't feel well. And I am a big believer that we wouldn't have half the people we have in prison right now if we had people that their minds were working properly mm. because their gut was working properly. Not only on the fact that they're hungry and robbing things for other people they can not starve, but also the decision-making process. So if your gut was functioning properly and you're feeling good, you'd probably be thinking better, getting better grades, doing better things, making better choices. Uh, you know, I'm not talking about everybody, but I'm talking about a lot of people in life. Uh, think about a teenage diet uh, in a place where there's no, in a food desert. There's just not a lot of good stuff going in. They got a lot of sugar, a lot of inflammatory things, a lot of, you know, uh, these these chips that have all the preservatives and crap in them. A lot of, uh, of, of I don't want to slam any brands here, but uh, carbonated drinks that are sugar rich, uh, uh, all these weird stuff. None of that should go in the gut, but yet it does. And from that, all kinds of crazy things happen upstairs. So there is the gut-brain connection, and we as a country must recognize that. Must. If we intend to have a turn for crime rates, if we had better decisions, better outcomes uh, in, in life, better immune systems, fewer people going to the hospitals, fewer people dying, people getting sick, uh, longer lives, all those things, tremendous impact on where we are as far as a healthy country. I've spent a lot of time in, in Northern Europe. Although there's not a lot of raw milk going on, there's a tremendous emphasis on gut, bioavailability, nutritional density in, uh, in Northern Europe, uh, in France, and, and farm-direct foods. 
France has a lot of raw milk. But the bottom line is we're getting there in certain parts of the world. Other parts of the world, it's it's just run by corporate greed and addiction to food that will get you going to buy more. And so I totally agree with you. I believe that there is a lack of, of a spine to stand up and say, the emperor has no clothes. And this is the truth. This is what our scientists are scared to say because their grants will be pulled at the universities to study this stuff because corporations gave them the grants to begin with. So we have a corporate greed, regulatory support of that corporate greed. And unfortunately, I think our Congress, for the most part, and in their exceptions, of course, I love Bernie Sanders. The bottom line is that, that, that the legislature is bought off to, to maintain the status quo. And so to change status quo means somebody has to evolve and change. And nobody likes change. Because if you adopted to a current thing, you don't want to go to some other thing. So we have a big challenge. I believe the way we do that in the current paradigm we have is dollar voting and actually having the truth come through as a choice to consumers and let the consumers make those choices. And you'll have some consumers not make those choices, tragically. But those that will, will become an example to those that should. And um, I see that happening here in California. I see that happening in other places. And it's going to be a slow process, but I think it's a very good process and it's an important one. So on the topic of change and how that is a, it's a big shift that you have to make, especially mentally, and especially on the topic of raw milk, because again, say I was 27 years of thinking that it'll kill me and I, th I think it should be sick. And now listening to this and then all of a sudden, hmm, I'm interested in trying raw milk. What advice would you have for somebody in terms of what they should look for in terms of trying to trust the, f the farmer in the farm? Uh, should they be asking certain questions uh, before question. trying that? Great question. You know, if if you have if you're in California, obviously the Cal the city uh, California Department of Food and Agriculture has done some work for you to to vet the farmers that are allowed to sell raw milk. But I would reach out and get to know your farmer. I would actually go visit them. We encourage our consumers to come visit us, and we get lots of visitors all the time. But you want to see the right kind of conditions where cows are healthy, um, cows are clean, cows are comfortable, they're well nourished, that the udders are clean when the machines go on. That the milk is rapidly chilled. That there's some testing going on. You don't have to test every day like we do. We test, God, we spend a half a million dollars a year doing testing. But the bottom line is, you don't have to do that. But test once in a while to know what's in your milk. To assure that you're doing what you're planning to do. That you're not just guessing or, or random wondering, hoping that you actually know. Data drives good decisions. So that's what I would encourage people to do. Do some research. Go online. Uh, go to rawmilkinstitute.org. And look at the standards we have for raw milk producers. We have 44 farmers in North America that have become listed and certified, and they submit their bacteria counts every month to us or every week, depending on we submit it every day, uh, to build a database for research on raw milk that's produced in a different way. So it's not just the FDA that has data on raw milk intended for pasteurization. Now we have over 20,000 data points about that, about 20,000 data points of farming data collected in the last 12 years for farmers that have submitted the bacteria counts, including from raw farm. So I would ask consumers to one, become educated, two, reach out and get to know your farmer. Talk to other people that drink raw milk from that farmer and what their experience has been like. Make sure the farmer's friendly. You wanna make sure that farmer is giving you information and knows what they're doing. That's maybe a big ask for somebody. 
uh, uh, raw milk that's just you know used to trusting and just buying. But in raw milk, it's a little bit different. You need to make sure that the practices behind the brand are good. And that was a very, I second the notion of friendliness because yeah. to me, it's kind of alarming if they're very shut off and don't want you to visit or have you asking questions. But on the flip side, I've said this time and time again, switching into agriculture was the greatest decision of my entire life by far, simply because yeah. of the farmers. I continue to meet, I mean, just talking to you and, and talking to everyone else that I've met so far is just simply incredible. And so that's why just adding on to why you should go visit the farm in the first place is it literally shifts your viewpoint and, and it makes you feel more connected to the natural world. And as woo woo as that sounds, that's all I could explain from that because again, I had not visited a farm my whole life. And then I was 27 and did that. And I was some city slicker working in tech. I used to work for IBM and now talking to them. Yeah. It's just simply incredible because you can tell how passionate you all are. And at the end of the day, like you were saying, it's raw milk. It's not fake news or anything. So it, it should be helped with this educational movement, essentially. Um, so yeah, just thank you all for, for the, what you're doing. And I think that's a good segue into the Raw Milk Institute. If you can just explain to the listeners what that is and why you started that. Well, I founded the Raw Milk Institute in 2011, which is now over 13 years ago. And... There was a doctor, um, Katerina Berg. She's a PhD veterinarian at, at uh, UC Davis. And she came down to our dairy in the 2007, 8, 9, when she was getting her PhD to study calf raising. And she was studying calves around the valley. And she did her PhD thesis on salmonella in calves. And she saw what we were doing here with raw milk. And she fell in love with it. She started drinking the milk. And she was a world-class cyclist. If you look at the Ram race, the R-A-A-M, the Ram race, her and the gals, they call themselves the raw milk cats. Uh, they're a bunch of smart 50-year-old gals that race across America and set a new world record for racing across the United States um, 24 hours a day. They all drank raw milk. Anyway, she and I put our heads together and said, you know what? We need to train farmers and set standards and provide opportunities to be excellent in raw milk production. It's such a vital food. And so I give a lot of credit to Dr. Katrina Berg and others on our board when we first established to go out and actually do the hard work of building consensus. And that means agreement, which is not easy to do, on standards for raw milk production. So we started out with what we do here in California as our standard. We took that and we vetted it. We said, how can we make it better or different? And we actually sat with a group of other uh, micro dairies here in California, some uh, cow share operations, in front of our Secretary of Agriculture, Karen Ross, and Dr. Stephen Bean, who runs CDFA, back in 2011 and 2010-11. Uh, and there was 50 people in the room. And we, we had many meetings in Sacramento talking about standards. And from that process, we derive the common standards, which are now used around the world as the single reference. There's no other reference. There's no international standards. We're the only ones who have ever established those standards. And that's where those peer-reviewed documents came from. They're now uh, in PubMed. But the app, when you apply those standards, you get very, very low risk raw milk reliably. And so those common standards are available to be viewed at the rawmilkinstitute.org. And we've trained thousands of farmers in them. 44 have become certified and actually a part of the, of the very close-knit community. But Raw Milk Institute was founded on the premise that raw milk can be produced in a safe, low-risk fashion when using good practices, trained farmers, and testing. 
and, and the right kind of conditions. And we're very successful in doing so. Uh, it's a volunteer organization. We are supported by uh, some money from Google, which is interesting. Eric Schmidt's grandson, Eric Schmidt was the CEO of Google for many years, is a multi-multi-billionaire. And Wendy uh, Schmidt and himself both established the uh, 11th Hour Fund. Well, their grandson, uh, who was the son of Allison uh, Schmidt, who died, unfortunately, several years ago, their grandson uh, was severely asthmatic and had problems with his skin and things like that, what I understand. I only met him once. But he started consuming our raw milk many, many years ago, and that all got a lot better. So they felt a uh, kind of a DNA connection to us a little bit. And when we applied to them many years ago, we said, we need to support these practices. And by the way, I'm not getting a paycheck out of this. This is a .org 501c3 volunteer organization. Uh, we want to put on-farm labs on farms. We want to train farmers. We want to promote this. We want to travel and connect. And so they do give us a substantial amount of money every year to do that. And they have for the last five years. And I believe they're going to continue to do so. So we are very grateful to the 11th Hour Fund, plus the donation from farmers that now contribute a penny a gallon for all raw milk they produce on their farms when they're certified by us as a contribution to support this ongoing effort. And we are the only 911 call you can make to get help if you are having a problem in raw milk. And we help all farmers, regardless of they're certified or not. Hmm. So we are the uh, literally the connection you can make to get help, to know what the heck you're doing and, and save yourself if you're in trouble. So uh, that's the Raw Milk Institute. It's a phenomenal organization. We've got um, several board of directors, including a PhD from um, Penn uh, Pennsylvania State University, Dr. Joe Hackman, on the board right now. And we have advisory board uh, members that have been on the board that continue to support uh, around the world. Um, and we've got uh, uh, Sarah Smith, who's phenomenal. She's an ex-NASA space engineer, uh, oxygen expert. She's also a naturopath and does a great work with a lot of works. We've been working with these for six years now on educating Raw Milk. She's about as smart as you get. We have an RN there, um, Kelsey, who is uh, Kelsey Barefoot, who's an RN, who's retired from uh, from medicine after the whole COVID debacle. It was just too stressful for her. That um, she does a fantastic job with the microdairy uh, back east in supporting raw milk education, and she's on our board as well. So we've got a fantastic board, um, very active, and uh, supported by Google and the farmers. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah, really awesome. Really awesome. The last question I, I have. So talked about. For the folks that are potentially interested in drinking raw milk, my next question would be for the folks that are potentially interested in working now in in the dairy industry or might have an interest of starting their own micro dairy or dairy as a whole, what advice would you give for them? I'd reach out to Raw Milk Institute first. What we'll tell them is go go visit as many small micro dairies as you can, raw milk dairies as you can. We want you to get to know other people that are doing this already before you make mistakes that they already made. We want you to learn from others before you do yourself. Uh, apply to us. We will mentor you and help you through the process to optimize your farm for your set of conditions. We're not going to come out as the raw milk police and say, you've got to do it this way. I don't know what you have to do where you are because I don't know what your feed sources are. I don't know what your animals are. I don't know what your water is at. I don't know what your elevation. I don't know if you get 12 feet of snow. I don't know, but I do know this. I do know that we can optimize what you're doing, where you are doing it for the people you're serving. We have a lot of experience from all over the world, India, South Africa, South America, Canada, United States, uh, New Zealand, Australia. Uh, we've worked some in Lebanon, of all places. Uh, we, we've worked in Northern Europe a lot in Great Britain. We've trained 175 farmers uh, that were having problems and now they're having very reduced problems because they got educated. 
<laughs> bottom line is reach out to us. We're going to tell you, you need to visit some farmers to get educated about what the heck you want to do anyway. And then what we'll do is we'll help you to understand the conditions you have and optimize them for the cow and for yourselves in terms of how you would uh, make the milk, uh, create the milk, uh, bottle of milk, do all the things with the milk, comply with your local regulations or not. If it's completely illegal, we don't care about that. We want to make sure that the milk is safe. That's our goal. Uh, if you want to do it illegally, we don't care. That's not our problem. We, If you want to do it legally, we care. We'll make it our problem. We go either way. We don't care. We want to make sure that the milk that comes out of your process is safe. That's what we want, as safe as it can be. And we'll help you by giving grants. We give $500 grants for uh, uh, small dairies that are in our process that uh, allow the establishment of, of the on-farm lab. So you can get data to test what's going on in your milk within 16 to 24 hours, 16, 18 hours. You get data even faster in some tests. So we want people to have a community to rely upon that can support them. And the Raw Milk Institute community, the Rami community is very powerful, very strong. We get together every 90 days and we do a huge Zoom call and there's 50 people all over the screen. And we talk about everything, any lessons to be learning, new stuff. Um, we're also doing research in on-farm pathogen testing, which is completely pioneering. Um, to be able to safely know what's in your milk within three hours. Wouldn't it be awesome if you could replace pasteurization with on-farm lab testing so that you can do optimal production practices and then test and know before it leaves the farm in three hours, know before it goes, whether it's got a bad bug in it or not. That time is quickly coming. We're already doing a little bit now, but within five to seven years, I think whole genome sequencing within three hours is going to be possible and, and cheap. So that's the speed of technology. We are supporting that. We're very much on the pioneering cusp of that as well. That's so awesome. And I'm I'm so looking forward to just the rest of the year and, and what this will entail for Raw Milk. Um, yeah, thank you again so much for joining me, Mark. I've really appreciated this. For all the listeners, uh, social media, if you just look at Raw Farm USA here in California, definitely recommend trying trying it out because whenever you shared the raw butter, I miss that. I visited a friend uh -huh. in LA and... It was noticeably better. It was so much better. <laughs> so cool. yeah, thank you again. Ryan, thank you so much for being the voice for the consumer and educating. Because without that, we would not see this regenesance like you talk, like like you name yourself, which is so, it's really true. It's regenerative renaissance. And thank you so much for inviting me today. I really appreciate it. You can find the full video on YouTube at the Regenesance.